FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Welcome to Castaway, FIS's freight and commodity podcast. It is Wednesday the 10th of November and on this week's episode we have of course Theo and we're joined by Andrew from our fertilizer desk. Uh, Kerry is away at the Fast Market Steel Conference in Miami. I'm sure sunning himself uh, on uh, bed with a nice cocktail. But uh, So we don't have them this week, but we have a, a fine replacement to talk about what's been going on in the fertilizer markets. But in this week's episode, it does feel somewhat of a groundhog day from uh, the last podcast we did. And that was true apart from maybe the dry freight markets. Iron ore continuing its descent below $100.00. Oil still wavering around that range, the 80 to 85 bucks range, uh, and fertilizers at these record highs. At the cake market, however, is, it does seem to be holding uh, against any more significant losses after the bloodbath that we um, had described by Kerry last week. Uh, but again, that Panamax index is down. But uh, what's been happening in the news, what's been happening in the indexes as a result, and then a little bit more in depth on what's been happening in our specific markets. So this is obviously Tuesday the 2nd versus Tuesday the 9th yesterday. Uh, Brent, almost a non-mover, down 0.8%, uh, closing 83.72. Last night, the high sulfur fuel oil prices dropped 3.5%, down also 0.7%, uh, 4.3195, and the Sing 4.5170 closing last night. The very low sulfur fuel oils, the Rotterdam, uh, marginally down, 5.6690, down, and the Sing 0.5, uh, actually up. It's again above that $600 mark, 640 cents, according to the FIS report last night uh, on that. But on the freight markets, uh, Cape size 5TC average was 30,987 last week and now 30,475 last night or 512 down or almost a non-mover in the context of the uh, movements we're having on dry markets recently. And the Panamax 4TC Again, as we mentioned, dropping on that uh, just over 5,000 bucks down, 26,423 last night, or 16%. Uh, but Theo, what about the um, iron ore markets? What have we seen there? Um, the iron ore markets week on week, the plus 62% was at yesterday settled index at $92.45, which is down $4 or 4.15% week on week. The uh, fast market 65% settled at $109.40, which is down $4.50, which is close to 4% again week on week. And the 65-62 spread uh, settled at $16.95, which is down $0.50, cents, 2.87% week on week. On the tanker markets, TC2 is down 8.4%, uh, 114.44. TC5 down 3.6%, 122.86 closing. Uh, the VLs T3C down 0.6%, now settling in that mid-40s range, 44.86, and TD25 up 2.3%, 109.17. Uh, and on the EUA futures, compulsory European market, that is, for carbon, uh, it was €59.46 last week, and now we're basically around that €60 Euro level. And we've uh, seen some movement in those uh, voluntary markets as well, aren't we, Theo? I guess we are in the voluntary markets. The uh, NGOs are now at uh, 13 US dollars a ton, and the GEO settled at $8.60 overnight. And then just to point out some interesting news that's been out there in the past week since you've last listened to our voices uh, via this podcast. Uh, Chile's lower house voted to impeach its president, 
over a mine sale revealed in the uh, Pandora Papers. European gas prices were on the up again after there was little evidence of increased capacity from Russia. Xi Jinping, the uh, Chinese Premier, has summoned hundreds of Ch senior Chinese Communist Party officials to Beijing for a meeting that is expected to pave the way for his unprecedented bid for a third term in power next year. Ireland's foreign minister has uh, warned that the EU could abandon the entire Brexit agreement with the UK if the British government goes through with its threat to suspend parts of the withdrawal agreement. And global holdings of Chinese stocks and bonds rose by $120 billion this year. But going into what we've seen in the markets, Theo, why don't we start with you on the Ferris and looking a bit more into what's happening on the environmental front as well. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the first markets, the iron ore market in particular, has turned into the uh, fundamental market now. So we're seeing moves that actually make some sense. Uh, by the end of last week, we saw the iron ore arrivals into China were at a whopping 2.4 million tonnes up, uh, which, which means there was no surprise when we saw the uh, SGX front end being sold off. So last week's uh, arrivals into ports were 13.178 million tonnes. What's happened is uh, China's largest steelmaking hub, Tangshan, which announced on the October 28th, a, temp a temporary steel production cut aimed at uh, tackling and the worsening air quality. Under that move, about 19,000 metric tons a day of capacity was suspended for that week. This coupled with the weak domestic demand in both consumption and construction sectors, the ongoing property development developers uh, default situation and China's carbon emissions having already peaked in 2020, the question is, can we uh, expect any boost in steel demand next year? Also, will uh, proactive monetary and fiscal policy cushion slowing economic growth and lift these steel prices? That's pretty much the questions on uh, all the traders' uh, lips now at the moment. And uh, you can see in the market uh, that selling pressure is continuing. I mean, steel margins are back down to just under 700 uh, RMB per tonne which were last seen back at this level I just checked in March of this year. And in regards to carbon, participants in China's emissions trading system should almost quadruple by 2025. This should help to boost the market that's been suddenly low in volumes since it started in uh, July this year. About 8,000 companies from eight sectors will be able to trade allowances for carbon dioxide emissions by 2025. So currently only 2,200 firms are covered under that trading scheme, and all those are in the power sector. So the authorities plan to expand that market to include other key industries like steel, chemical, and petrochemical sectors. Uh, qualified institutional investors will also be allowed to enter the carbon uh, trading uh, scheme to boost market activities. So the total volume of emission allowances covered by the carbon trading will reach 6.5 billion tonnes by 2025. So current, the current uh, coverage is 4 billion tonnes, but only 22.2 million tonnes have been traded in the market so far. And this is probably, in a value to put in perspective, 155 million US dollars. So China, uh, China's carbon price yesterday closed at 42.581 per tonne, which is a fraction of the rate of the European uh, Union allowances, to put into perspective, which are trading at currently about 60 euros, which is about 70 US dollars a tonne. So on this uh, carbon topic, I had a uh, look into the COP26 situation, which is in full swing. And now we're into that second week of COP26, and the main topic is dealing with the uh, training rules of carbon. So the US climate envoy, John Kerry, said that he sees COP negotiations producing a deal on carbon training rules, a move that will be a major win for those after more than six years of these failed efforts. 
getting an agreement on the rules for trading carbon and offsets would mark a turning point for the climate diplomacy. It should bring a transparency and accounting rigor to the world of offsets and help countries and companies cut emissions. Climate envoys at COP26 narrowed down options on how to designate, design the international carbon market under the rules proposed published just uh, yesterday, actually. So negotiators are seeking to deal to enable functioning of emission trainings between countries and companies mandated by the Paris Agreement. So the new proposal offers two options on the diverse issue of treatment of carbon offsets issued under the ICADO protocol and the clean development mechanism. Either no use of the new carbon market or permission of, trade, of transfer credits from some projects after 2016. So the use of old credits under the first national climate plan for the period up to 2030 remains to be decided with options ranging from no use to permission for credits generated by projects registered after 2013 or after 2016. And the proposed accounting rules for bidding double accounting in transfer of new carbon markets offsets for sect sectors covered by national climate pledges. So in, in sectors outside the national development contribu contrib contributors, avoiding double accounting would be, a, would be mandatory from 2025 or 2030, which is to be decided. Uh, the negotiators are considering various options on how to use cash generated from bilateral trades of carbon credits under the Article 6.2 of the Paris Agreement. So some revenues will be channeled for climate adoption in developing countries, either as a mandatory or recommended move. And finally, two JAGs, Lord John Prescott has sold all his last of his favourite cars in a bid to cut his carbon footprint. So the former Deputy Prime Minister, who's now 83, keeps a zero-car household despite spending decades attached to the Jaguar brand. Lord Prescott, who once bragged about owning one of every kind of Jag bar one, has also cut down on the amount of fish and chips he eats. He said he's now no Jag Prescott after selling the last of his motors ahead of his visit to the COP26 uh, climate summit. In the column in the, um, in the Times red box, he wrote, I've made my own small contribution to cutting carbon emissions. I've sold my Jaguar. I'm now zero Jags. There you go. What a change for Lord Prescott on that point. Um, yeah. And a game changer in terms of whether they can actually agree these set rules for changing uh, for trading these carbon markets. I know it's something that the uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has been calling for as well. And, and I mean, Theo, your personal perspective on if they can agree these kind of set of rules, does that change the landscape for, for things we've been talking about carbon markets currently? Absolutely, because I mean, then then uh, it's also if with that with that transformation you'll get, as I said initially, you'll get that accountability, that transparency, and that comfort that when you're when you're trading these credits, there is there's, there's a value to them. Um, auditors, uh, financiers will be more comfortable with the whole project, and then you'll start seeing the the real use of these carbon credits, where they can be moved from one country to another. Uh, contribute to uh, the developing countries. So it, it all forms, it all makes sense into put, moving into this unified uh, carbon, voluntary carbon market, which I think is just inevitable, really. And yeah, bringing on those countries who aren't necessarily trading at the moment, because EU is very well developed on things. There's some other projects going forward, but to, to have global rules on this would bring in a huge amount of liquidity into the market. Definitely very something very exciting for uh, those who are involved in it. But um, moving on to talking about carbon and uh, what about oil and products this week? The uh, fuel oils, what's been happening there? Well, 
We did, again, as we mentioned, Groundhog Day, drop into the end of last week, just like a week ago we mentioned on the podcast. Um, Brent hovers around weekly highs, buoyed by the prospects of um, stronger US demand um, with the $1 billion US infrastructure bill that was passed through both chambers of Congress last week, uh, hoping that could boost demand for uh, oil products on that. But uh, And the country also has opened to international travellers, that's vaccinated international travellers as well, uh, from Monday this week it was, I believe. So a lot more travel in terms of airlines, a lot more people visiting. And with that, I'm sure that other countries will start to do more if they are still uh, have any kind of stringent controls on people moving. Um, the EIA, in its latest um, outlook, said that uh, growth in output for OPEC Plus members, US Shell and other non-OPEC non -OPEC countries will outpace slowing growth in global oil consumption in 2022. And it's saying that it thinks that current you know, an easing from current levels to an average of 72 bucks a barrel for the year for uh, the remainder of 2021. And it expects Brent prices to remain near these levels, averaging $82 a barrel in the uh, Q4. Um, and it also trimmed its outlook for 2022 global all demand growth by 130,000 barrels a day uh, to 3.3 million barrels a day. But it did raise its outlook for U.S. oil production to 11.13 million barrels a day in 2021. Oh, that's up 110,000 from last month's view of the short-term future of the market. Um, we are seeing things move around in terms of the U.S. A lot of this is between OPEC and the U.S. And I guess a way of describing what I think a lot of people will be looking at at the moment is... Uh, relations between the US and Saudi Arabia. So it's not been exactly the most warm beginnings of relations between the two. And with Biden calling for a lot more production and it just not appearing. Um, you seem from, uh, this is from the S&P Global Platts saying that there's signs that, you know, actually this OPEC plus group may find it a lot more difficult in ramping up production, which they had agreed previously. Um, it's saying that uh, its allies boosted production OPEC and its allies boosted production crude oil production by 480,000 barrels per day in October uh, and this is not anywhere near you know this is struggling to pump the levels which he had promised from from months ago um, but if you were listening to all those bits before about increasing production it makes no surprise that the EIA said last week in its figures for the US that crude oil output was up 3.3 million barrels uh, draws on gasoline. So we are seeing that demand come back for uh, gasoline. The distillates was a little build, but refinery utilization back down to more more normal levels rather than those high 90s we were several months ago on that. But um, that's what we're seeing in terms of the kind of oil markets. Uh, on the fuel oil, the movement again is on that high five market, the difference between the high sulfur fuel oil and the very low sulfur fuel oil markets. We're nearly 150 bucks on the thing. It's a long time since we've seen those levels in that market. The high sulfur fuel oil crack continues to drop, continues to be weak. It was opening uh, on Wednesday last week, minus 13.55, uh, and closed last night at minus 14.55. So continuing to, to widen on that spread uh, again. And then just to point out on some physical points, this is from our partner Engine. East of Suez Fuels, as following Brent, has kind of been in the uh, range bounds factor uh, with calmer weather conditions in Shanghai as well, helping to ease any of the problems. In Europe and Africa, bunker markets are generally 
range bound again as well with those steady Brent levels. And the problems in Gibraltar have eased uh, as there's been recent supply problems for that specific fuel on the very low sulfur fuel market. Um, we are seeing some more weather disruption still in some ports. Uh, in Shanghai, we have finally got some wetter weather and they're working through some of the backlogs. Uh, but we are still seeing some problems in Zhushan with strong winds and bunkering suspended in certain areas. Uh, and again, weather delays have mounted in Las Palmas uh, with suppliers unable to deliver to the port. Um, and I think there's only about one vessel at a time being able to get in at the moment. So, so there's some problems going on in terms of the physical bunkering market and fairly flat now. And there's just that tug between what's countries who are large oil consumers are demanding more production to cut these prices, uh, questions over whether the US will release anything from its strategic reserve again, compared to OPEC promising more production and not doing it. Uh, but then moving on to the dry freight market, just very quick overview what's happening there. We on the capes, we saw a slow recovery at the end of last week after that really big movement down in rates. So the 5TC did gain again uh, around about 3000 bucks ending the week, just shy of 29,000 on that. This optimism had spilled over into the next week, starting this week with rates continuing to, to, to edge up again. But this was already a low level compared to where we were over a week or so ago. Um, so it seems too early to tell whether this is actually going to be a turnaround in, in sentiment or just a bounce after a large drop previously. So week on week, the future market is up around about 2000 bucks a day or so, but the index marginally off as we sent at the uh, start of the podcast. On the on the Panamax, however, um, a huge day for the Panamax, over 10,000 lots trading on the uh, across the curve. This was on the day of the last podcast. Uh, and it shifted sharp early on and continued throughout throughout the day uh, on that Wednesday. Sellers uh, aggressively early in the on the November and Dex sold down those those two contracts, with people picking up into uh, any any bids that were still left there uh, across the curve. Um, week on week, we have seen a pretty big drop in that index, just over five thousand dollars a day. But uh, the futures, if you're looking at those markets, are actually fairly flat. So, in essence, the way of of reading it on the surface is this is. For both markets, a question of uh, is this a genuine change of sentiment going forward or is it being, you know, a temporary pause of, of falling rates? Um, some big figures in terms of the dry freight markets at the moment, um, year, year on year, year to date for Capes up 51% and volumes, Panamax up 69%, Supermax is up 103%. So if you put all them together, FFA and option total, we are up 61%. Uh, on last year, or in terms of lots, uh, 2.6 million lots this year so far on that. But it just brings me to, obviously, our uh, special guest of the day. Um, he has been on before, but it's always nice to have people back. Um, Andrew from our fertilizer desk, who's going to obviously be talking about what's happening in the first market, because we've had quite a year so far, and um, we are we are around record high prices and I guess everyone will ask you know what has been causing that yeah thanks for having us back Chris I mean we've seen FERT in the in the mainstream media but finally back on the uh, FIS Castaway podcast so really kicking along in the FERT's market yeah as you say um, record prices across the board basically um, particularly this week in urea markets um, we've seen Arab Gulf and Egypt urea values reach record highs so we're at um, $950 a ton FOB Arab Gulf was achieved this week in the physical market and $925 FOB Egypt. Uh, so as I said, record prices, but I was told earlier this week that on real terms, we're not quite 
at the highs reached in 1973. So we'll just have to settle for uh, for record high nominal values there for the price of urea. Um, and I guess, as you say, what's behind that? Um, and a trader said to me this week, um, he put it down quite simply, there's, there's just not enough, not that much urea in the world right now. Um, so I guess the last last run up we saw in prices was, was initially kicked off by the gas crisis in Europe, which I'm sure yourselves and, and you know, other other it's been covered quite widely in the news. Um, but what that led to in fertilizer markets was production cuts in urea and ammonia production. And then that sort of snowballed with government interventions. We've seen export controls out of China, Russia and Egypt um, at the same time as, as India, major, a major import market has, has you know, had plenty of demand emerging. So we've just really seen that supply and demand um, you know, complex really really tighten up um, in the, into Q3, Q4 this year. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, that's essentially what's behind it. And as you say, record record prices now, and it looks like with an Indian tender closing tomorrow, we could see those, the, this week's prices eclipsed again and approaching that $1,000 mark almost for, for delivered markets, CFR. That would be quite some story to, to be putting out there above that $1,000 mark. But um, the question in my mind now is then, we have seen these high prices, okay, higher since the 70s in relative relative terms um but is this a sign of things where we're going to have higher prices for longer or is this a temporary blip because of the supply problems yeah um as you say i mean i guess it's, as you said it's been it's been quite a a clear trend in fertilizer markets this year i mean we've seen prices continue to rise throughout the year and at each new level we've reached we've had skeptics you know saying we're at the top and that started out around the three four hundred dollar mark um, as you say we're now we're at 900 plus um so i can't see prices you know, getting back to those levels anytime soon. As I said, it's, it's, it seems quite a fundamental um, structural issue in the market right now. There's supply constraints and there is still demand there. Um, and we are indeed seeing demand at these elevated prices through sort of Q2 in the in the Nola futures market in particular. Um, so I think, yeah, it's more than just a short-term um, a blip. As you say, I think we'll continue to see elevated prices. The fundamentals are quite strong. Um, but yes, I mean, there is to some extent some, sh- some shorter-term Factors which are causing, you know, as we said, we're seeing the futures market backwardation in those those FOB markets in particular. We we should see some cooling off in prices, but I think we we should see uh, elevated prices continue through you know into next year. So come to the end of this year, um, as someone who's looking at this market day in day out, what kind of the main factors will be you will you be keeping your eyes on to go well? Are we going to be keeping these high levels or what's going to be the next big movement in this market? Yeah, for sure. Um, as I said, India's the, the you know, what everyone's watching right now. As I said, they've got a tender closing tomorrow. Um, the expectations are they still need another 3 million tonnes or so of urea for this season. So we could see even after tomorrow's tender, another one or two um, tenders from India, which will keep, you know, keep the market tight, keep supporting the market. But I guess... The, the question then becomes what happens elsewhere. Um, and as you said, we're at these we're at these record high prices. Prices are, are very high. So everyone's sort of cautious. So everyone's looking to towards other markets, Brazil and New Orleans in particular, to see you know if if those high prices start catching on. At the moment, we're seeing Brazil and Nola markets still quite discounted versus what India's paying. So I guess we'll see whether we do see those markets start to pay up and attract the tons. Um, or if we do see a correction um, in the FOB market. So I guess that's the sort of trade that's playing out on futures at the moment. As I said, we're seeing those FOB markets quite backwardated into, into Q1, um, whereas we're seeing that demand emerge for NOLA and Brazil urea just to, to sort of catching up, I guess, with, with the rest of the world. And then the ultimate question of people looking at this now, what, in your personal opinion, is going to be where we're going to go next year? 
my personal opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess looking from the markets, um, as I said, we're seeing prices expected to cool. Um, I mean, Q1, Q1's firming, firming now, I guess, um, it was, was trading at a bit of a discount, but we're seeing you know, those Q1 prices continue to rise now. But pricing in a bit of a correction come Q2 after the Northern Hemisphere winter. Um, we are expecting most most market players are expecting that that to that to can um, price to come off. Personally, I mean, I think we'll continue to see plenty of volatility in this market. I mean, look at the volatility that's happening in in energy markets and commodities in general. Um, and you know, we have these these governments stepping into the fertilizer market with these various interventions, and you, know, you don't really know what's going to happen one day to the next. So I think you know we'll, we'll continue to see plenty of volatility um, through 2022. As for where prices go, that's that's anyone's question. I, they can definitely go higher from here, um, but I guess yeah, the, the general expectation is we will see prices come off somewhat, but remain elevated through uh, 2022. There's going to be volatility. That's definitely for sure. <laughs> easy, easy answer that one. <laughs> yeah, true. Like with all these other markets, with the freight, the iron ore, and the fertilizers we've seen in the last year. Um, yeah, risk management is a good tool. I think is probably the conclusion exactly. that we can conclude. <laughs> but uh, anything else from you, Theo, for this week, or are we all uh, good? No, that's all. That's a wrap for me. Cool. So uh, we've obviously been delving into what's been happening in these uh, main markets with a particular focus again on fertilizers as we approach that $1,000 mark uh, and a little delving a little deeper into what's happening in COP26 uh, and the implications for, for countries like China and their large industrial base. But uh, all it leaves me to, to say is just for everyone listening, do join us again next week. And uh, very much a uh, big thank you to, to Andrew to give me his insight in what's happening in those fertilizer markets. And of course, to Theo, uh, as usual, giving all his insights on the other side. But uh, cool. Do join us again next week.